Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. It's 50 years since an androgynous rock star from outer space landed on Earth and brought with him the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. But this alter ego of David Bowie was merely one of a raft of personas he embodied over the decades. As he evolved as an artist, so did his look. The only constant was his ability for each new character to become iconic, emblematic of the era in which it was created. Bowie's bold steps brought in waves of new styles, with young fans eager to pastiche his look, at least until the next one came along. But as an artist, he represented so much more than being just a trendsetter, blurring gender norms and espousing notions of bisexuality in the unreconstructed 1970s. He created his own world that was playful, chaotic, yet accepting. Desperate to be part of that world, legions of fans found comfort in Bowie, the sequined chameleon, screaming as they reached out their hands to him, waiting for him to tell them that they too were wonderful. Oh no, love, you're not alone. On today's show, we'll be looking back at the visual legacy of David Bowie and what the evolution of his visual world tells us about him as an artist. A new film, Moon Age Daydream, catalogues Bowie's performances, interviews and unseen footage, resulting in a wild, technicolour celebration of his life and work. I spoke to the film's director, Brett Morgan, about the bounty of unseen footage and material from Bowie's estate, the meaning of the looks and how Bowie the artist was knowable, but the man less so. Brett, thank you so much for coming on the programme today. I want to start off by congratulating you on a, a dizzying, amazing thing that is a documentary of sorts, but it strikes me that it's a work of art about an artist, really. Tell us what you started with, because I know you had a, a great conversation with the Bowie estate and, and got all sorts of unseen footage and stuff that, as a Bowie fan myself, I obviously hadn't seen before. Tell us what it felt like to sift through this treasure trove, first of all, Brett. If you can imagine, it's hard to imagine, uh, for two years, every single day, six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, I was invited to explore the David Bowie archive. There was never dull moment. Well, as soon as I said there was never a dull moment, it got a little tedious in 87. In general, it was almost, well, in fact, let me add, let me add to that. When it just at the moment where I was like, this is getting a bit tedious with the Glass Spiders tour, the next piece of media that I saw was David performing at the, doing an experimental dance performance at the ICA. And I was just like, whoa, palate cleanser. And I just wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning, because I, I just want to help orientate your audience. It is not a documentary. If you go into this thinking you're going to see a documentary, that implies you're going to get a lot of facts and information and hear from his colleagues about how great he was. This is not that type of film. As you rightly pointed out, it is really one artist's impression of, a, of another artist. And it's meant to be impressionistic, immersive, and it was designed knowing that there are dozens of books and documentaries and articles that go deep into Bowie. And as I sat at the starting gate and said, what can I offer? I felt the one thing I could offer is the one thing you cannot receive from a fact-based biography, which is an experience. And, and you know, Bowie was, 
if above everything else was mysterious and enigmatic. And I had no interest in kind of deconstructing that. Beautifully put. And it feels like you've used a lot of Bowie-ish techniques in a way. Were you giving us, as you said, impressions of Bowie? There's a, a beautiful subjectivity to that. You know, as you say, you haven't gone down the talking heads route. The only voice we hear, apart from some wonderful, notable interviews and some that I'd never seen before as well, the only voice we hear is Bowie's. Was that always a central part that you didn't want to have, even someone like Tony Visconti or Brian Eno or the top collaborators, as it were, Brett? No, uh, because they would be explaining things. I, I didn't want to explain. And by the way, I've read Tony Visconti talk about David Bowie. I don't know what else I would unearth on that. To me, again, this is made very consciously knowing that there is a wealth of information out there and I had no interest in repurposing it or recycling it or trying to explain. I've been doing this for th this type of approach my entire career. I've made eight films, seven of which don't have interviews with anyone. That's not my interest. I'm not a journalist. I'm interested in making cinematic experiences that kind of push the boundaries of what we consider to be documentary or nonfiction. And with this, this was very much created as an experiment to try to assemble in a theatrical cinematic space, a non-biographical portrait, non-chronological, non-biographical portrait. And as we were saying, I think Bowie is perfectly suited for this sort of uh, orientation. It's so wonderful. It's wonderful seeing footage of Bowie, I guess it's Bowie in the early 80s, kind of blonde Bowie in the era when he, he shot Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence and things like that, walking around Asian night markets. And, and it's just beguiling. It's wonderful stuff. Is that the footage that you kind of glean from the estate, this kind of deep dive, as you said, with only one perhaps dull moment on the uh, Metal Spider um, tour? Was that the kind of stuff that you were uncovering and thinking, where can I slot this in? This is amazing. I could have made a film that was entirely unseen material, and I could have made a film that was entirely seen material, but I felt that I needed access to everything, and I didn't want to not put something in because it had been seen by people, and I didn't want to put something in only because it hadn't been seen. But that said, now that we're where we are and, and the soundtrack has been announced, which has basically revealed the track listing for the film. Yeah, there were some amazing things. I mean, David Bowie during the Ziggy Stardust performance at the Hammersmith with Jeff Beck on stage doing Gene Genie and Love Me Do. You know, Bowie's performing Heroes at Earl's Court in 1978, shot on five 35-millimeter cameras recorded with 24-track audio. We had access to um, all of the original camera masters for all three nights that they shot for the um, Sirius Moonlight Tour. And I was very excited to get in there and kind of reconstruct the material that I don't think had been edited since 83. And when it was edited, it was probably edited on a linear editing bay in probably two or three days. So there was just every, and every performance in this film was cut specifically for the film. All the music that we hear in the film was remastered and remixed. When I say remix, reconstructed from their original stems to work in a movie theater environment. Yeah, the music mix is amazing. Versions of songs or the theme seems like, am I right in saying, Brett, that you did the music mix yourself as well? Literally pinned me to the back of my seat in a very good way. It's phenomenal. 
I did the musical mashups in the offline, so I was I was taking the stems and sort of taking you know a piece from Word on a Wing and and juxtaposing it with some other element somewhere else. The music for the film was mixed at, on the mixing stage by Paul Massey, who had won the Academy Award for Bohemian Rhapsody, um, is an 11-time nominee, you know, most recently did the James Bond film. He's kind of a master of sound and music and understanding how that will present itself in different cinemas. This is key because when you're mixing you know, we mix in the Xanax, the Ford stage at, at, at Fox, which is uh, their biggest sound stage. But that room is more kind of rectangular. And when you take that mix into kind of a longer room, it sounds different. Paul understood this, so he kept me in check. I mix the film often with my back turned to the screen because I really wanted to create a kind of even distribution of sound around the room. Paul, who's been mixing films since 1981, uh, you know, like anyone who mixes films, um, understands that all sound emanates from the front of the room, where the action is. But there is this film is designed where there's no kind of front, top, bottom, or side. It's meant to be kind of elliptical. And so it was very interesting in working with him and trying to get him and his team to do what I was doing the whole time, which is really step outside of that which we were comfortable and familiar with to try to access something different and not ordinary. And that was, I think, very much in keeping with Bowie. I feel like everybody who worked on this film had to sort of really challenge themselves to do things that they'd never done before. When it was all said and done, I mean, doing it was quite frustrating, you know. There was a moment when I was five years into this film, I was flipping the channels and I came on the Bee Gees documentary. And I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. Why can't I do this? This looks like it took them three or four months. This seems really satisfying for the viewers. And I, I cried, man. I got depressed. I was like, why do I make things so difficult to myself? Why couldn't I have just done a more linear piece? But I don't know how to do things different ways. So I think in that sense, I may be even more dogmatic than Bowie in the sense that if I've seen someone do something, I don't want to do it. I think we're, um, uh, we're beneficiaries of your restlessness and dogmatism, Brett. It's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> There's some wonderfully intimate moments. Bowie was great in interviews and he was sort of hiding in plain sight. There are some wonderful moments, aren't there? I mean, you know, everyone says that Bowie was unknowable, but he sort of laid it out, didn't he? There's these wonderful, these wonderful UK interviews with Russell Harty where he's talking about being bisexual and he's, he's talking about, he's asked if he's wearing bisexual shoes and all the rest of it. There's a huge wealth of interviews you could have gone to. You found some really lovely, lovely moments. What was it like watching those back? Because those are the bits where he is saying something about himself, whereas the rest of it is obviously very impressionist. I think Bowie was quite revealing of himself, he just didn't like talking about his private life, you know, his family and his personal relationships. That was not something I was interested in either. And so when you pulled that away, I guess maybe that's why people felt like he was difficult to access. But very rarely did I see him shy away from a question. Very rarely. 
Some of the early interviews, he was kind of having a gas at times. But I think that from 77 on, he is completely present in those interviews and kind of just not selling. You know, he wasn't, he never was really selling anything, even when he was out promoting. And so I, I feel like people, you know, would ask him things and they would try to, it was almost a lot of gotcha journalism. I think that maybe frustrating that they didn't know who he was dating or, you know, going, but I don't think knowing that stuff gives you any greater insight into who the artist David Bowie is. Here, here. And just finally, Brett, I mean, this isn't meant to be a, one of those zinger questions, but I wonder if you felt you knew Bowie more or less or knew his process and him as an artist more or less after making the film. I had strong opinions about Bowie when I walked in and I kind of undid a few things for me in a good way. As you say, you've created a series of impressions. It's a subjective montage of beautiful stuff, a dizzying thing. Did you know Bowie more or less as an artist when you finished that massive edit? <laughs> Having had the opportunity to have viewed every piece of media in existence, both from his private archive as well as the material that's publicly available, I feel that I got as good of an insight into David Bowie, the artist, as well as I could possibly receive. And that was what my interests were. I was awestruck by his intelligence, his generosity, his um, ability to remain present, and really the way that he was able to marry his philosophies of art with the way he lived his life. And because of that, we're able to kind of, on the surface, have David talking about his, his creative process and his art, but it's also parallels what his life experiences were. Honestly, it was uh, when the tears was, was finished, I almost felt like it was almost too good to be true. Like I was absolutely in awe, more so than I have ever been with a human being. Bowie offered me personally life advice that I have taken to heart and have now employed and applied to my life and I'm all the better for it. I think that he was just um, absolutely one of a kind, singular and worthy of all of our um, attention. And I think the fact that he continues to to provide his viewers, his, his audience with, um, with new insights is amazing because the insights we gain aren't about David Jones, they're about ourselves. That was Moon Age Daydream director Brett Morgan. And to unpack the era and its glam vibes a little more, here's Mark Patris, author of the new book Glam, When Superstars Rock the World 1970-74. to
Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to have you on the programme today. The authority, Mark Patris. And I wanted to kick off, Mark, by asking you if you could sort of guess what Bowie was going to do next. We went from the alien rock star to the blue-eyed soul star. He had a kind of Armani 80s megastar kind of moment. I wondered if you had any inclination that he would always do the opposite thing or do something that seemed like a, a fluid progression. Or was it just, did it seem like he was sort of hitting random all the time? Well, it was a bit of both, really, I would say, because Bowie was part thinker and part salesman. You know, he would be quite nuanced in his response to various things. So with Ziggy Stardust, for example, he had afterwards, he invoked Aladdin Sane, which was like an extension of that, to keep building on what Ziggy had done. But after pinups, he did Diamond Dogs, which was kind of collapsing the whole thing a bit. Then, you know, we had the disco years, which was a complete breakdown with what he'd done in Britain, but it was something that was very much tailored to America, and he got that American success. Then he became, with Eno and Visconti, did the the Berlin trilogy. They're not always dictated by fully commercial concerns. You know, for example, that Berlin thing was definitely dictated more by, I want to be an adventurer again. I want to get off this merry-go-round, this fame that he sang about on that brilliant song, which was huge in the States, you know. It was kind of uh, apotheosis, a kind of point at that time, and he wanted to collapse that and, and pursue the artist with a big A again. It's fascinating how you put it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he obviously went through these things. I wonder how thought through they were. You sort of described him very pithily as part artist, part salesman, I suppose, part thinker, part salesman. How sort of thought through were these lyrics? Because obviously he was sometimes more artistically inclined than at other points. I mean, he'd studied mime, he'd started off as a sort of wannabe pop star and come folk star and all the rest of it. I wonder how thought through you think the kind of the looks and the music that went with them were. Well, I think Ziggy was thought through. It was an exercise in wish fulfilment in a way because it was about someone who was a star and he wasn't quite that star yet but it was thought through but piecemeal at the same time you know there was a sense of exhilaration because it was something new at that time I think he was confident of, of breaking through he'd seen what Bolan had done and he knew Bolan and they were kind of friends and rivals so he took the glamorous element from Bolan and gave it his own, the subversive New York twist and the Iggy Pop, the, the, the American deviant rock twist in a way, plus his own interest in theatre and, and cinema. You know, Clockwork Orange, of course, was there as well. And Bowie was more of a social critic than Bolan, so he, he built in that deviant youth kind of look into the whole Ziggy costume and it ran right through the music at that time too. So it was thought through, but it was designed, but designed piecemeal. Now, later on, for example, the Diamond Dogs tour in the States and the Young American State, that really was probably designed on a table. You know, I'm going to wear the Puerto Rican outfits, break up the band and, and work with these incredible soul musicians, embrace something completely new. But it was done, yeah, I think that was very much something that was constructed like a little piece of architecture and they knew really where they were going and took it. It was brilliant as well. I mean, brilliantly executed, shall we say. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the way I see that. 
there's some very lovely moments in the movie that are looking actually at the fans of Bowie. There's a lot of close-ups of, you know, that sort of echo the Penny Baker film at Hammersmith of the audience for, for Ziggy and those that amazing run of shows that were the final shows for Ziggy in London and catching people in the crowd outside with their sort of lightning bolt makeup. And there was a real DIY aesthetic to the clothes that prefigured punk, I guess. I just want to, Mark, with you can give us a little bit of a picture of how transgressive, how homemade and how subversive glam was as a as a sort of movement. And I'll put movement in inverted commas because <laughs> maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't. But I wondered what the scene was like. It wasn't, I would say, a traditional subculture in the sense that Mod was, that Teddy Boy was and that Hippie was and that Skinhead was because they were all subversive and they were kind of against mainstream culture. And what glam essentially was, was working within mainstream culture in many ways, you know, the showy outfits, the Liberace thing, going on small screen, it was very much played out in the living rooms of people around Britain, just watching Top of the Pops every week. It was like Battle of the Bands and who could be more outrageous than the other. But it was it was kind of conventional in many ways. Bowie gave, I think, more subversive edge to the whole thing because, as I mentioned, he, he drew from that Warholian New York tradition of subversion, of gender blur. With the music, he defied what was happening at the time, which was these, you know, soft-shoe singer-songwriters and would-be Beethovens playing their classical progressive riffs. And he said, no, let's bring it back down to the Velvet Underground, to Iggy Pop, music of the streets that was direct and in your face. Um, so that was subversive in terms of what Bowie did. And I think by drawing on the clockwork orange imagery, which then fans imitated, again, that was buying into, you know, there was a moral panic in 1972 about the clockwork orange film, so much so that Kubrick withdrew it from the market after a few months. You know, there was all these little in local news stories about, you know, clockwork orange guys beat up so and old man, you know, Ziggy guys even. I think I've seen a headline. So Bowie really designed his own fans in a way. It was uh, There's this wonderful quote in that Cracked Actor documentary, 74, 75, where an American fan says, you know, he's the commander, we're just the space cadets or something, you know. Uh, this sense, Bowie epitomised that early 70s idolatry for the star. You know, in the 60s, we had four Beatles, we had five Rolling Stones. You know, they were stars, but in terms of pop stars, individually, they would be, you know, Steve Marriott, Peter Frampton, but Bowie and Boland made, magnified that, and they gave the, the pop charts, as opposed to the rock superstars, they gave pop superstars, you know, they were the, the Greta Garbos, the Marlena Dietrichs of their time. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating, the focus on the individual and who, for the most part, I guess, were, were men in those cases. But the kind of competition in the glam stakes, Mark, I suppose, were like Wizard, The Sweet, Slade, and who looked a lot less put together and thought through, didn't they? They looked like blokes that could have been in any kind of pub rock band who just happened to be wearing a bit of mascara and having some kind of glitter on their top hats. <laughs> they, they were kind of grades of glam, I suppose, right? There were. There was a, a hierarchy of glam in a way. They, they're called the proverbial brickies in satin. But, you know, it's uh, which is a bit cruel. But, you know, stupidity and just plain pub Saturday night fun, you know, the sense of panto, was a very British thing. And it has its place. And... 
partly what Bowie was doing himself in a more clever, mannered way was bringing play to the sense of serious art, but also he was making seriousness a playful thing. You know, he, he, he attacked it on two levels so that you didn't... There was this sense, really, of, of camp, really, where the, the value system started to be inverted and turned upside down. So Sweet and Slave were all part of that, but Bowie, I think, intellectualised it, and he would drop... Warhol's name and, and Nietzsche and various other people into the mix during interviews. It's fascinating to look back at interviews of that time and see how erudite, in a way, Bowie is, you know, compared with most other stars. He's talking about mass media and stuff on a quite a different level to most of the rock bozos who would just say, you know, well, we, we're doing this 10-minute uh, solo here and whatever. He really articulated, he saw pop as part of... Yeah, this the mass media thing that people kind of feared that George Orwell feared, and that for you know for, for decades, and he uh, continued that. I wondered if you could give us a sense of the fans' journey, actually, Bowie going through all these different identities and musical identities as well. So the fan that had the lightning stripe makeup on in 1972-3 would then have had to have kind of got into blue-eyed soul and then kind of slick produced pop and stuff like this. I mean, people say, I love David Bowie. He's one of my favourite artists. You have to go on quite a musical journey to follow all of his career and like it all the same, don't you? I wondered how much, if you have any sense of the constancy of his sort of fan club as it were or the average kind of chart pop listener actually yeah well i've got a personal example even here to illustrate something on that it was seen at the time as quite insincere uh, even boland said about bowie you know i hate it when pop stars try to break it big by pretending to be something that they aren't you know they, they had this great big handbag rivalry in 72 and there was a suspicion when bowie started to change the characters it's like well who is he he's just fake you know in a world where authenticity was the great big word and i remember getting a lift with some other long hair friends in 75 to the nebworth festival and the guy who gave us a lift had the new bowie album on young americans and he said listen to this and within 10 minutes on the motorway we were all shouting off 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 we hated it you know it was just we're not going with bowie he's like uh, we're going to see pink floyd and captain peafart you know bowie is just a, a pretender rubbish you know but this guy was adamant and uh, so some people went with those changes and, and others didn't and it took me a little while longer to get back on the Bowie thing with with Low and Heroes and of course I love young Americans now you know I'm, I understand really more what he was doing but when you're a kid and you're having those playground battles it, he did seem to be a bit insincere and uh like a TV character, you know, wearing a different, you know, Bruce Forsyth's on in this suit this uh, season and then the next season he's wearing a different thing. So people were suspicious about Bowie. Yeah, it's it's amazing considering how tribal pop certainly was then more than it is perhaps today, Mark. It's an amazing risk to take as a successful performer to, to kill the golden goose, which I suppose for many people, well, Bowie's breakout character was Ziggy. How successfully, I wonder... Did he unmake Ziggy Stardust? I mean, he sort of came back to referring to odd bits of his, his career, dropping references in to later albums and bits and bobs lyrically and in terms of visuals as well. But for some, for many people, Ziggy is the sort of gold standard Bowie. It's the picture that your imagination conjures, perhaps. I wonder how successfully you think he, he killed off Ziggy, really. 
Well, he was very keen to kill it off authoritatively in 73, but by 78 he was back on tour again after punk, realising that all the punk fans were brought up on Ziggy. I mean, there's pictures of Sid Vicious at Bowie Gigs in 73 and Rotten and so on, and Susie. So he went back to Ziggy himself within just five, six years to know that this was his calling card. I mean, he understood the the Hanna-Barbera attitude to commercialism in that, you know, you make Tom and Jerry and then you do, you know, Yogi Bear and Wally Gator afterwards, but you're always going to be remembered for the Tom and Jerry. And I think he did understand that as early as the late 70s. And there was always Ziggy material pretty much in the set from then on. So unmaking it was tricky. And, you know, over the last 20, 25 years, when all the retro stuff has really kicked off, 30 years now, a lot of it has been built around the whole Ziggy thing, the reissue catalogue, the box sets, the looks. We always go back to that. Bowie himself was very clever at the end of his life. He knew he was dying. And he decided, I'm getting off that train completely to do Black Star. And that was like a Ziggy shock. But shocking as Ziggy was in 72, what he did with Black Star, it was like, no, I want my legacy to be seen... He was demystifying the whole idea of artists, you know, the star, uh, I am the, the big I am. And also it was a, a piece of social critique. He had a jazz band, not a rock band. That was Bowie wanting his legacy to live on and on and on and on. And just finally, Mark, maybe on a personal note as well, for you, what's the era that speaks to musical experimentation or simply great tunes and a sort of believable persona as well? Because it seems like in the sort of way that he sort of constructed the architecture of his death in the end, even there was performance in that as well. But for you, what's the era that kind of encapsulates the best of the best of David Bowie? Well, for me... (laughs) I sort of look between the cracks and I like the the moments when Bowie doesn't quite know where to turn. And I would say the man who sold the world when he was a one-hit wonder pop star with Space Oddity. And then he kind of formed this hard rock band. He really didn't quite know what to do, but he knew he didn't want to be this simple Dylan-esque pop star. And it was done sort of on the hoof. You know, the band, he said to the band, you know, knock up. He gave them the basis of the songs and then let them jam around them. Came up with lyrics at the last minute. And it was a really magical, mystical, intellectual, psychologically rich and musically very rich. It was kind of post-cream in a way. And I love that. That's Bowie taking uh, his foot off. I mean, there was a little bit of commercial concern there because hard rock was quite fashionable then. But I don't think they really saw it to be a, a popular album necessarily and especially the way he had the dress cover for it so I really like that and I love Diamond Dogs because there again it was you know it was a blank slate again The authority that is Mark Patris thank you so much for your time today Mark thank you And that is all we have time for today. Thank you to my guests, Brett Morgan and Mark Patris. Mark's book, Glam, When Superstars Rock the World, is available now. And Moon Age Daydream is in cinemas from the 16th of September and also accompanied by a book, Moon Age Daydream, The Life and Times of Ziggy Stardust, published by Genesis Publications. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the programme. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in.